So we have a great, great, great show today. My guest is comedian Pete Corielli. Now, Pete, Pete's got a great, uh, great career path, you know, from being a stand-up comedian to also being a, a writer. And he's written for Kevin James's uh, last two sitcoms. He has one that's on Netflix, and then he had another one that was on CBS before that called Kevin Can Wait. And Pete has wrote on both of those shows as a staff writer. And he's an awesome stand-up comedian that's hilarious. You might listen to him. Uh, he's he's Sebastian Maniscalco's sidekick on their podcast that they do every week called The Pete and Sebastian Show. If you haven't checked that out, go check it out. It's one of the funniest podcasts. I listen to it. I'm a big fan of it. And I don't listen to a million podcasts. I listen to theirs, and uh, I listen to Mark Maron's podcast. That's Those are my two uh, go-tos in the podcast world. All right? So uh, I'm really uh, excited, and I want to get to the interview really fast because we did a pretty, uh, pretty long interview here. So let's get right to it, okay? Here's Pete Corielli. We'll be right back. So what's up, dude? I know you're close to New York City. Um, so are you going to bring me fucking down? Because I can't, the New York city comics are like, you know, they're acting like it's the end of the world and I can't be around it. No, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not nearly, I'm somewhere between you and let's think who's someone who's like knee deep in the New York comedy scene, like a, uh, uh, who, who would be somebody that's Lenny just- Marcus. Lenny Marcus, or I was going to say, uh, why can't I think of his name? It's the comic who does a million late night spots and he's doing really well right now. Uh, da, da, da. Mark Normand, like those guys. Like, I, I'm in between you because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a 25 minute drive from the Upper West Side and then to go down to the village and the comedy cellar is like a 50 minute drive and I just don't do it as much as I used to. I, I, I do it here and there, whereas yeah, that's why I'm saying I'm like I'm like in between you and them, which is well, I'll, I'm I'm freaking seven and a half hours from New York City. Yeah, <laughs> so I go to I'm about forty five minutes to fifty minute drive, easy drive on the thruway, but easy peasy to Buffalo Helium. So I go there, man. It's great. I, I go there and I work out whenever I want and. Uh, it's funny because that place has like, it reminds me of the comedy cellar when I started at the cellar, because when you go there during the week, you know, and it's just local comics, it's not crowded at the helium, you know, there's, you're playing for like sometimes 10 people. Um, uh, but on the weekends, depending on the headliner, it starts to get more crowded. So it's like the comedy cellar towards the end got so packed that, you know, Every time you went down there, you know, you, you, you had to do some of your regular stuff just, just because it was too crowded to just completely work out. You're looking at me weird. Are you hearing me? Yeah, I'm just... Oh. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you're fucking trying to, like... Yeah, you know when someone's driving and they're also half listening to you and they're going, yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'll listen. Get on the highway and then we'll pick this conversation back up. <laughs> I'm debating if I should plug my headphones directly into my computer. It's like a, a technical thing. Hey, what kind of host are you i'm sitting here talking and you're wondering if you should plug headphones in you're not even listening nobody listens anymore i i i am listening and i and i i hear you that like there's so many comics that have left new york and la especially in the last year that 
and and as you get to be an older person, you start to figure out that a lot of the shit was in our heads that we had to live in New York City or we had to live in L.A. and we had to just do spots in New York because it meant this. And now it's like wherever you move, you can figure out a way to be a comedian. You can either. Yeah, you go to Buffalo, you go to Syracuse, whatever you got to do if you want to work on stuff. But and I agree with you. That if you go to the cellar and you do you you can't fuck around and try shit and and that's what us comedians like you and I that we've been doing it so long that's what's most important to us to have a place where we can start building that new hour of material. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say though, you need those city clubs to to learn how to do stand up. I mean, I don't see how a guy can start out in Kansas and fucking make it. You you know by going to New York specifically. Not only are you getting all the stage time, but you're seeing live the best. And when you see the best, it's like a ball player whose son becomes a pro ball player. It's because they knew from two years old how good you really do have to be. So, and but but when you reach a point where you're headlining and stuff, it's starting to be like, what am I getting out of this anymore? You know, you, and even even I would do new stuff, but you couldn't do all new stuff. You like you know you had to do something in between because other comics are crushing, so you had to do some of your regular stuff, but more than just that it was it was the comics too they just if they're not famous they get very depressed and after a while it's like you know all comics love to say when they become famous oh i would have did this forever i didn't expect to be famous i just wanted to make a living doing comedy yeah and then when they're just making a living doing comedy they want to fucking shoot themselves because they're not famous they're all and i get it i'm not saying like you know i'm 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 perfect and i haven't had my uh, moments where i get frustrated but being around it it's just it wasn't it was not creative and i didn't need to be there anymore and the big one that helped me though was when i finally did leave the city i left years ago man i left years ago because i was headlining all the time and i was barely even going to the comedy cellar or anywhere because i was always on the road uh and then uh but i would like i remember being like i moved to la at first and i remember like looking on my phone uh, every night to see who's playing the cellar because I'm like, they're getting better than me. They're getting better and I'm not. Um, and then one time I was doing a, a headlining gig, me and Bobby Kelly were playing together at this uh, casino and Robert Kelly goes, dude, we played the cellar for years to learn how to do stand-up because we didn't know how to fucking do it. Now we know how to do it. So you don't have to be there. You can go wherever you want and, 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 and live and, and, and work out stuff. And then the big guy opening was I started doing gigs opening for Regan from time to time. Brian Regan and I became good friends. And um, the first time I worked with him, and, you know, obviously it's a theater and he's got this, you know, all these fans and sold out. And like he halfway through, he does like new bits and it doesn't even get a big laugh. And he goes, uh, all right, folks, that was a new one. Uh, appreciate the feedback. I'll give it some work, you know, and he would do that here and there. And then he comes off and I go, Brian. You're doing new bits out of theater? And he's like, well, where else am I going to do it? And I'm like, good point. And he goes, and I think they like that. And I go, they loved it. I'm blown away. I thought when whenever you're playing the theater, it's like stick to the script. No new shit, you know. But it's just a bigger venue and a prettier venue. But it's still the same concept. You know what I mean? Yeah. You and, know uh, who really yeah. showed me that skill? Yours, it sounds like, was Brian Regan. I opened for Dennis Miller once. And talk about... Talking about taking what you just said to another level, Dennis Miller, 
I don't know if you've seen him in the last 10 years anywhere on TV, do stand-up or anything, but he has a podium on the stage, right? Because it kind of fits because he does a lot of political material. But what he does is he's got a notepad right on the podium. His jo- He doesn't go work out anywhere. He's to the level where he can just write the joke word yeah. for word on paper and read it. Literally read it, and you can't tell the difference. And I remember hearing him interviewed somewhere where he's like, I can write an hour of material, and then I just start performing that hour that was just literally from the page. Like, where I think maybe you're the same as me, where we have ideas, we go on stage, and they and then they have hits and misses in the bits, and we fix them again and we put them back out again. Like yeah, to, yeah. to think you could just write it on a page and go do an hour of all stuff that you never said before. The only time I did that, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever like, I wrote a, uh, like a one person stand up show. It was kind of inspired by what Colin Quinn was doing where yeah. he had like a, a theme <laughs> to all of his stand up. You do have, you dabble with everything, Joe. Yeah. So, and I'm still doing it, but right before I, the first time I did it was literally like two weeks before Corona blew out all the gigs. So I had notes all over the whole stage on every piece of equipment that was up there at this theater was, was notes with a number on it, like telling me which order, like I knew it kinda, but there was a lot of, there was literally 60% of it. I had never done on stage before and I'm in front of 700 people. And I was wow. like, fuck it. And because what what saved me is a lot of it was about the area. And I was in the area doing the show. So imagine if you wrote a whole hour yeah. about living in your town. Yeah, yeah. You can't go practice that somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then your town loves it. No, that's interesting. There's a couple things I want to say about all that because... I've been writing newsletters now. I, I've done like, I don't know, 15, 16 of them. I put them out every couple of weeks. And they're just, you know, whatever I want to write about. Like it's an article, of, whatever, you know, and I try to make them really funny and I put a lot of fucking time into them. And then uh, a friend of mine was like, dude, you can just read these and we could make an album just you reading these. We can add some cool sound in the background. And, and I didn't, I haven't done that, but I get the idea. But I mean, I so so I, I do write a lot and then I bring it to the stage. But there, to your point, you know, how many times you write something that you think is funny and then they don't, the crowd doesn't, and you and you can't figure out why they don't, and then you do some throwaway shit to fucking kill time, and they love it, and you like you love that. I said that to my buddy at the drive-through when we were getting the coffee. I thought that wasn't even funny, and you love that, but you hate the, all right. So there is a no matter what. But with Lear, with uh, Dennis Miller, I, this is a great story. When I used to do this radio show with Jim Brewer, Kevin Pollack was on one time, and we happened to be chatting about our specials. And we go to commercial, so we're not live, and Pollock goes, everyone's doing special At the time, he goes, gosh, everybody's doing specials. And he goes, I even went to see Dennis Miller. We're good friends, and we went to have lunch. And I had to meet him on the lot, wherever he was working, one of those Hollywood lots. He had an office. And when I walked in, Dennis Miller, they waved me into his office. Miller was on his phone and he just kind of points for me to sit down, have a seat right there. And I'll be one sec. And he goes, and I hear Dennis Miller saying something about a special. So when he gets off the phone, 
I go, you're doing a special? I didn't hear about you working out or anything like that. Uh, Miller goes, yeah, I'm doing a special. And then he goes, wait, where are you working out? And Dennis Miller goes, where am I working out? And he literally points at his desk. He goes, right here. And Pollock goes, what do you mean right here? And Dennis Miller goes, I write the whole thing in my office. You know, I pace around. I get the timing down. I memorize it. He goes, and then maybe I'll bring it to like the Pittsburgh Improv for a night or two because that's where he's from Pittsburgh, I guess. Right, yeah. Uh, he goes, but otherwise, uh, I just lay it down, and then we, we do a show, we record it, and then I take it on the road, and that's it. And then, and then yeah, I don't want to get too out of line here, what I'm saying, but he said to Dennis Mills, said, I don't need them to tell me what's funny. I know what's funny, you know, meaning like, he's, but he's always been like that, right? His stand-up is, if you don't get it, that's your problem, not my problem, whereas me and you are more like, okay, let me go home and reword this, because obviously no one understands what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I think it's if maybe the key is I think you and I and even Sebastian, who you do your your weekly podcast with, we're probably similar in that way that our life is our jokes, you know, and there's there's got to be some uh, living on stage, you know, like you're saying things that you really feel and have a, and or, or or probably almost really happen to you and then you turn them into to bits whereas a Dennis Miller or like even the guy I said earlier like a Mark Norman they write jokes and they're short and they're like bah, 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 bah. and then it goes to the next yeah. thing whereas like uh, I mean as as negative as everybody is about Bill Cosby I always tell this story I saw him live once like 15 years ago and Every, what he did two hours without an opener and literally just they he at the show on the tickets at eight o'clock he walked out there at eight o'clock on the dot everyone wasn't in their seats yet and he just begins i love the i don't know if you can hear this in the back my wife just like starts printing shit from another room and it just starts <laughs> come it just starts flying on the floor in my room because the, the thing's not even out <laughs> what is her so so cosby I, I, what if she's if she's printing something that's twenty five pages long right now? I'm gonna. I don't it. hear it, so you're okay. good, man. It's fucking so distracting to me. I'm gonna. I'll show the camera if you can. Uh, I think there, there's a printer. Uh, oh yeah. Shit. All right, whatever. It's still going. Can you hear that? Not really. No. <laughs> Sounds like a tree. All right, so Cosby. Two hours, but what made it not seem long? Every bit was about one specific thing, and it was 20 minutes long, almost like almost on the dot, like a little short movie. It had an opening, a middle yeah. to it, and then like a conclusion that you give an applause to because you could tell the bit had this really funny end to the 20 minutes, and then boom, starts a new subject and draws it way out for 20 more minutes. No bit was like two jokes long and then on to the next story. A total, right, right, everything was right. long. Yeah, yeah, well, but I mean, are you laughing though? Yeah, it's, it's oh the yeah, whole time? I mean, they're, they're like, they're like I remember working with Bill Hicks when I first started and I'm sitting Ooh. there with this comic and like I was so enamored by Bill Hicks, I think I I had my video camera out. Like that was my first road gig, and I'm just filming myself talking to Bill Hicks. Like <laughs> that, I was way ahead of my time. That shit you would do now, right? Yeah, right. And Bill Hicks looks. To, I'm the MC. This other guy was the feature, and he looks at us, 
and he and he called his bits. He called them pieces. He goes, "I'm in the middle of my Chevette piece," and we were like, and the the feature act goes, "Note to self: In five years, stop calling them bits and change them to pieces." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i love it man i'm I, doing my piece about bread right right oh, i love that yeah, yeah so yeah so uh every comic that's what you realize i think when you've been doing it long is there's no rules you can be a peace comic you can be a just a quick bit comic you could be a stephen wright you could be a mitch hedberg there's really no rules so it's yeah. like do what you I, want and I, I i think dennis miller was correct as i know what's funny and if you just go up there and tell it and you have that confidence behind it, it usually works when you've been doing it a long time like us. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like to do a little of all. I like I like writing jokes and doing setup punch. So I do a little of some of that in my act. And then I like some longer stories. The only problem when I do a long story is when I'm starting out and I feel like they're not into it. And you're like, well, oh, that's going to be upsetting for everybody because this thing's seven minutes and we just got started, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then, and then when you just, you have a halfway through one and you bail on it and it's only like two people, you are like, keep going. And you're like, yeah, guy, that's exactly why I bailed on it. Fuck the rest of the room, you know, is silent. It's, I got two people listening that are into it. So, but that's but, why uh, they're laughing at us because we are willing to be honest and say yeah, and give them true. that little narration of, oh, this ain't where. Like, there's a lot of comedians that might be detached and they're never going to show them that side. Have you ever worked with one of those guys that just fucking clicks? It's like he's click and play, and no matter how much they're laughing or not laughing, they're just, they do it the same way every time. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. But I mean, the the joke thing, though, too, it, it's all great, right? Because like, then you take a guy like Gaffigan, and he just goes up there and rattles off jokes about one topic. And um, they're so funny, you know, you get going, you, that one makes you laugh. And then you're like, Oh, he's got another one. He's got another. And then the giggling kicks in. So, you know, it's, it's to each their own There's everybody's got a different way of doing it. But um, I, I, you know, the, the important thing I think we both agree on, though, is we you have to be you. Whether you're going to tell one-line jokes or a story, you have to be Joe Matarese. Because to be anyone else, we've seen that. Remember when we started out without naming names? Some guys would do character comics, and you're like, guy, hey, what are you going to do when you're 60? You're going to still do that shit? It's crazy. Yeah, that that's, it's weird how that, that evolved and is pretty much gone. I guess if you do that style... There are some guys lingering around that do characters, but usually they get into sketch comedy and stuff like that. That or or they just or they become a huge. Uh, they became a they become a huge like social media sensation with their characters, not really in a stand up. One sec, form. Joe. I'm doing a show. I told you I was. I cannot do anything with your dad. Please tell him not today. Guy, we got the guys here. No. It's not a day. No, no, please. Holy cow. I love it. It sounds like Jack, but he's in the way of Phil and Steve. It's a muddy mess. Sorry, bro. It sounds like my life. Well, that's the thing. Comics are always casting now. Uh, like, you know, their wives and girlfriends walk in the room. They're like, I don't know if you're on the phone or if you're in the middle of a goddamn show. Of some sort. Yeah, so thank God my kids finally started back into school five days a week that I can do a podcast without my daughter walk. Which is, she'll just open the door and walk in and 
say I need you to make me uh, some oatmeal or make me a bagel or I'm bored. Do you ever get that one from your daughter? I'm bored. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Life's yeah, boring. I <laughs> yeah. I'd kill to be bored. I would kill to be bored. I don't have time to be bored. All right. Because even when I have nothing to do, I'm so stressed out. I can't be bored. Yeah. So, so the podcast now is called Pretender to Contender, you know, which all my podcasts, which I've had 900 of, and that's why I get, I get ripped on the most. And, uh, I agree with the people that rip on me, by the way. Um, I, I have the only trolls that are, uh, 75% correct. <laughs> oh, why? What are they? What are they? Oh, that's what I get trolled about the most that how many fucking podcasts I've had. Oh, but well, I, what what do you do? You do, what tra- what changes about them? Like a bar, just the name. The name will change. Sometimes there's a different guy who's my co-host. Sometimes it's just me. Uh, I've ha- I, I told I, I explained that I was on Kevin Brennan's podcast last week, and I said to Brennan, I think I treat podcasting like I do stand up, which is I got to throw a lot out and fix it up. And by the time you see it, it's been filmed and it's all honed. Whereas when you do a podcast and you're figuring it out, it's fucking out there so they can rip on it. So like I'm always I'm like this like idea guy. Like I've had one with the shrink as my co-host and we're doing a show called Stand Up Lie Down and we're interviewing a comedian and we're playing his clips and then we're psychoanalyzing him. I had that for like. Then the fucking doctor ended up get losing his license because of sexual harassment. We were about to sell that as a television show, and the whole oh. fucking idea got taken away. <laughs> yeah, I had, I've had yeah. so, but most of them are usually just like Life of Joe, Fixing Joe. Like they've been like all these names, but the people that have stayed with me along my podcast, they're like, it's it's usually just you. So yeah. like, but I realized I like talking to people in all fields not just comedians and i like figuring out how did they go from being somebody who was just thinking about becoming what they became and then becoming amazing at what they do like going from the pretender to the contender and then i interview from like restaurateurs to like comedians to writers to singer songwriters any any career and you see the overlap, which the main thing that's the overlap is everybody at some point goes, you got to just fucking dive in. And, you know, we've how many people you meet on the road? They're like, I want to do stand up. And it's like, you just got to you just got to show up, dude. You got to go to the open mic and, and start. So like, yeah, yeah. If Those we, ones are the ones that are so annoying. You know, it's like, listen, I'm not going to talk you off the end of the diving board. When you hit the water and you come back out and then you want to talk about stand-up, we can talk about it. But I'm not going to be that guy going, just go for it. That's such pansy-ass shit. I can't stand when they do that. Yeah. So I can't like, stand. It's a different world now with these comics too, man, you know? To emailing me, can I feature for you? What the fuck? You know how that evolves? That evolves when um, uh, you're in the city, you're in a green room, and eventually a headliner turns around and goes, what are you doing uh, March 12th and 13th? Right. And you go, nothing. And then he's like, you want to open? You're like, okay. And then you run home. You tell your wife, well, fucking open it. You don't, you don't email me, you know? Holy shit. Yeah. You want to tell those new comics. 
Do you know how many, how many comedians we have that are our friends? Like, why would we want to go hang out with the guy who we've never met before? Because we like his bits? Like, it has, you want to tell yeah. them, it has nothing to do with me liking your bits. It has to do with me liking your hang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's at least 75%. You, you know, 25% is your act. I can't have you embarrass me and ruin my show before I get out there. But other than that, it's afterward. Yeah. Uh, okay. People ask me, like, I mean, I've never been to the point where I, like, you know, need to bring my own, uh, opener or whatever i mean i'm doing this some small theaters and stuff but still even then they go do you have an opener and i go no nah, let's get let's get somebody you know who, who you think or whatever you know and they'll send send me a couple of tapes and i don't even watch them i go just whoever you think um because i do like when i perform i like to see new guys and see their stuff you know but more than anything guys like that i know that bring openings i go so like you, what do you got to wake up in the morning and you got to wonder what your opener's doing and they see if he wants to get breakfast together? Fuck that, man. After the show, you got to sit in the lobby going, so want to get a drink or you go to bed or that? I go, I don't, I don't want to think about anybody else, man. You know what I mean? So, so I you don't, that. so you never had the gig where you get lonely and depressed because there's this, because do you ever have a gig? I've only had it. I don't do cruises anymore, but I've done a few back in the day. I, yeah, I did a month run on one one time. It was such an experience. Yeah, oh. you and I ran. We, we passed each other. In the, You were getting off the ship, and I was getting on. Do you remember that? That happened no. once. I swear that was you. Maybe it was Russ no. Maneev. I think it no, might have been Russ because I only did it one time for a month-long run, and I didn't run into another comic. But did you ever have one where you're sitting there, and there's a six-day run with no gigs, and you're just sitting on the ship? For six days waiting for your fucking show and you oh, I, I get no, depressed that in that crazy. situation yeah and then i drink heavily yeah <laughs> like well the, the cruise ship i did was was this new cruise ship a norwegian but a new boat and long story short uh they were starting it up and they asked me to do this for the first month run um but basically it goes back and forth from miami makes three stops, comes back, and then a new bunch gets on, and it does this four times. Now, you know I like to smoke my weed, and they like they instill the fear of God in you to bring weed, so I don't. So when it makes its first stop on some island with St. Thomas, I get off because I'm like, I need weed, you know? And then I, I got a hookup, and I got weed, and I knew I'd be back to St. Thomas three more times because I was doing this right. So each island that stopped at the first time, I talked about this on the cast with Sebastian. I bought weed and I brought little sandwich bags. And then after I smoked my weed, I would bury it under a rock on the island. So the next week when I got back to the island, I would go to my rock and dig it up. And I'm like, there's my weed. And I had weed buried on every island. Oh, it was fantastic. That's a great idea. <laughs> I said, I should start an app. So, like, if you don't finish your weed and another person's coming to town, you go, it's the rock by the bus stop. Lift up the rock. Oh, yeah. So, it was so funny, man. And it gave me something to do, too. When the boat stopped, I got to get off and go dig up my pot. <laughs> yeah, it gave you a hobby. <laughs> but our, sh our ship had a show uh, just about every day except the, the crossover day, which is Saturday, where there was no show. And to your point, even one day without a show, you're literally like, what am I, just on a fucking cruise by myself? Am I literally on a cruise by myself? My life is ticking away. My wife and kids are home, enjoying life, 
and I'm I'm walking around a buffet. What the you know? And it just and you and can't even see, and you can't even call your wife or talk to your kids because it'll cost you two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah. And then you ever run into the the other comic who like uh, has been doing cruises for twenty years, and to him that's making it. He couldn't be happier. You know, he he has friends on the islands when the fucking boat stops. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, I get my massage from Sally when we hit the uh, you know Port Saint Fuck. so so (laughs) i I hate to even make you now i almost hate to even ask you questions about when you were um when the idea of wanting to do stand-up was in your head but just 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 give them a little bit of uh pete pete corielli when he was the pretender and he was like at what age was it and and how did you uh all right. How did you get the pretender out of your system? Well, and when did you stop feeling? And I'll give you two questions. That okay? And when did you stop feeling like I'm just a fucking pretender? Now I'm a com. I'm a comic now. What what was the what was the thing that happened that made you feel the next stage had begun? Okay. Well, first of all, growing up, I loved stand up. You know, everything like every other guy listened to everyone from Eddie Murphy to. I knew I really loved stand-up when I was about 18, and I bought, um, specifically went to the store to buy Stephen Wright's I Have a Pony, the cassette, and put it in my buddy at a Datsun, and we bought beer, and we smoked pot, and we went to, like, this area where we could park, and we just listened to it, like, two, three times, you know? And um, so looking back, I knew, like, I really liked stand-up. Then when I graduated, didn't think go, about go it. Go back, because that's kind of interesting that you had, because I had that same friend. There was always, like, one guy out of all of, like, all my friends could, would not want to listen to a stand-up album, li- literally listen to it three times in a row. You had a friend yeah. that would listen to a stand-up album with you for three yeah, times Yeah, but in growing a row? up on Long Island, my buddies, they all kind of really like good comedy. You know, we, uh, I mean, we literally got to the point, I'll never forget, we, Loved the dice so much that when Ford Failing the movie came out, we fucking tailgated. We bought tickets at the movie theater for a seven o'clock show, and at five o'clock we brought a hibachi <laughs> to the parking lot. We were drinking beers with the hibachi, hanging out, thinking the movie was going to be sold out, and that was so smart to get there so early. That's great. And it was like half full. And I remember, like halfway through the movie, we're all taking a piss in the bathroom. My one buddy Ronson goes. Want to get the fuck out of here? And we're all like, yeah. I'm like, we couldn't believe Dice wasn't making us laugh, but it was time to. <laughs> Did you leave? That. Yeah, we all left, man. This movie wasn't funny, you know? <laughs> but yeah, hilarious. so we, <laughs> we all loved stand up. But it was something I couldn't, I couldn't do. You know, my dad was an architect, my mom was a teacher. It was just something you admire from a distance. And then when I went to college, Fredonia State, upstate New York, my senior year, I took for just the credits, I took a class called Acting for Non-Majors. And that gave me the quote-unquote acting bug. So when I graduated college, I told my mom I want to try and act. And uh, I went, got the backstage, whatever you call it, and I found, uh, you know, I'd go on these casting calls, like big things where no one, you know, with hundreds of people. And then I found an audition to, be a, to try and be a part of an improv group. And it was just a bunch of misfits. And I auditioned, and of course, they let me be in it. Uh, and we would do, we'd practice, and then we would do shows. And we did three shows, and each show we did was at a comedy club at like 5 o'clock at night. You know, we'd bring our own family, one of those things, you know. We'd perform in front of 10 people. 
And then the last one was on the Upper West Side, Stand Up New York. And the whole improv group was going out to have a few drinks. And I turned to the club owner and I go, can I watch? Do you mind if I pay for my beers? And he goes, no, nah, you can watch the show. And I sat in the back when the first comic went up and my jaw dropped. And I, I was like, love at first sight. I'm like, holy shit, I want to do this. And then I went to Hamburger Harry's open mic and I'm waiting online with all the other comics. I don't know anybody. And then I he, see Judah Friedlander and Jim Gaffigan. And they're talking about a bit like Friedland is like, you're going to do that thing with the thing. And Gaffigan's like, and I, I remember just sitting there going, oh, my God, comics talk about the bits and they work it out. This is fucking so cool. And I just loved it. You know, right. I think we've all. Yeah, I, that that feeling of going to that first open mic after you were living a life of listening to all these comedy albums. And, you know, I grew up in the house where my brother, you know, I have a nine year younger brother. I have a sister. She was like not involved in any of this shit. It was just me, my dad and my brother. And it was just every fucking two days. It was Joe, get in here or dad, get in here. And it was yeah. always that when there was a comedian on, on the MTV half hour or they were on the tonight show. And I would VHS record them all. Like I, I have VHS tapes, like just filled with fucking stand up from before I was so a comedian. Cool. And then that, yeah, that moment where you go to the open mic and you go, "Oh my god, this is where I'm meant to be." That yeah. feeling is. And what about when you become a comic, and then eventually you run into one of these guys? Like I remember one time being at stand uh, New York Comedy Club, the dump where I've always where I used to mop and sweep the floors, and Rich Voss comes in. And he's doing a bit about, uh, I have uh, three kids, two stepchildren, which is great to have stepkids because then you don't have to hit your own kids. Yeah. And I hear the joke and I'm like, oh my God, I remember hearing that in my living room in college, dying laughing with all my buddies. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, go up to him like, my dude, it's you. Holy shit. You know, and you right. just can't believe you're like, you know, you're dipping a toe in the world of these people. Yeah. You know? And speaking of, uh, and people that are listening, if you're thinking about being a comedian, I mean, you, you don't know who's going to drop in. That's what's also cool. You know what it's similar to now that I think about it? I used to, I, I, I always, I said this to my son before. I love going to baseball games because you never know. Like, there's something about baseball. It has like a romanticism about it. I'm like, you might see a fucking perfect game and you were there and you're going to talk about it for the yeah. rest of your life. Cause I had yeah. that happen once with my brother where we, we were at the Yankee game when uh, Dwight Gooden threw the no hitter and, and it was just like, we talk, we still talk about it. I have a picture on my wall of when we went to that game together. And awesome. uh, that's kind of how comedy is. Cause you mentioned Steven Wright before I started in Philly, the open mics. More than once, Stephen Wright dropped in to do cool. to do us like ten minutes set, and I still remember it because the MC goes, he doesn't even want me to give credits. I go, well, what does he want you to say? He goes, he just wants me to say from Boston, Massachusetts, Stephen Wright, right? Yeah, and yeah. it was like. I was like, wow, that's a great fucking intro. It's nothing and it's great. I go. <laughs> and then that, remember how he would open? There would be like a huge applause and he would go, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom loved him too. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. We went and saw. I had the friend who loved comedy too, uh, who lived two doors down from me that we would just listen to comedy. And uh, we went and saw Stephen Wright 
in the round in the round <laughs> in Valley Forge when I probably because I'm I'm older than you, so you're listening to him before you did stand up. I'm probably one or two years into being a comedian, and I go pay to see Stephen Wright at this big theater with that guy. But and he, yeah, I remember my one last note about it. Back back to you is that uh, I remember my buddy goes, uh, he's doing all the same shit from his HBO special, and he's like, he was mad at the crowd. He goes, don't you guys have HBO? He was like, uh, how do you yeah. guys not know every joke? And we're like. <laughs> I was like, dude, they're not like us. They didn't study it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's such a thing. Gosh, it's so, you know, you don't know, right? You don't know what you do. What you, you, when you do stuff that you've done on a special, I'll tell you, the crowd will come off and some of them, like, if, if people will go, oh, I brought so-and-so, my friends, and I was hoping you'd do that bread bit. Great show, but we want, really wanted to see that bread bit. And you go, oh, I, sorry. And then you do the bread bit the next show, and then someone will come up to you and go, uh, Great show. I mean, you know, some of the stuff we already saw, but it was great to hear it again. It was great to hear it again. And, you know, they're pissed because you didn't do new stuff. So you can't fucking appease everybody. It's no, insane. That's I why uh, I loved Brian Regan and the way he goes back out as his encore and lets them request old bits, I think, is a good, yeah, a good way yeah. to do it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So so when do you so when when does the next phase come in? Because you have a lot of phases, and, and I want to get to all of them in this interview, where from writing and uh, and 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 radio and podcasting, you have a lot of uh, you know what do they call them? Irons in the fire going. So uh, so yeah. When, well, I guess you know it's funny because you know this too. When you do a Letterman or like the first one I did was the Tonight Show, you know people don't realize maybe or they don't care, but you know, you could do those shows and still not be really making a living as a comedian. You know, you, you know, you're up there going, "Hey, Baba Bob." And meanwhile, you're getting off stage for the Tonight Show, calling your book, or going anything. I mean, what the fuck? So, and then even my first hour special was exciting and fun. But you know, at least for me, it's like sometimes it's not the the accomplishments that like that that make you really feel like you're in it. Like my hero is David Tell, and I know you would think the world of him too and mm -hmm. anyone who might not know as far as what new york comics this guy like i can't tell you how much we all learned from watching this guy like just the best yeah he so, was he was so good that there were so many comedians that were accidentally sounding like a tell at one time there's not many comedians that were like affecting the way everybody sounded i'm like yeah, doing a tell, yeah it's funny we all go through phases right when yeah. we're starting out like mine was a Voss phase i would do Voss a lot because he's just so underrated to me as far as i know people think he's great but he's great oh Voss. but anyway Voss, rich Voss. yeah he's unbelievable yeah. yeah i just worked with him and he, he did the nicest thing which was it was so classic during corona this one club in, in connecticut opened up it was and uh, and Voss was going to be there, and I didn't care. I just wanted to do stage time, and I contacted Vinny Brand, and I was like, "Dude, I'll open, I'll feature. I'm uh, just looking to get up, you know. I want to work on some stuff. I've been sitting in my house." So I get there, and Voss is the and is the headliner. We're hanging out in the green room, and this girl comes into the green room. What do you want me to say about you? And I tell her, and. Uh, and I hang in the green room the whole time because Voss is so fun to hang with. He's got me laughing in the green room. So I literally get introduced and just walk from the green room right into the comedy club, right? So I'm just right on stage. And I start. I do my whole set, right? And then the next night, I'm driving to the gig and Voss calls. 
and I'm like, what's up? And he, I'm, I'm thinking I'm in trouble or something when the com- other comedian calls you on the way to the gig. I'm like, what, what? Yeah, He's yeah. like, I called the club and I told them they should, uh, they should get an MC. You're too good to be MCing. I go, what do you mean MCing? I featured yesterday. And he goes, no, you didn't. You MC'd. I go, I did? That girl came in the green room and asked me my credits. I thought she was the MC. He goes, no, she just introduced you from the back of the room. You went up cold. I didn't even fucking know. (laughs) I went right into my act. (laughs) And I thought it was so nice that he goes, I told them that you need an MC tonight. Yeah, yeah. makes the show better. I go, dude, thanks. How many guys would do that? Yeah, no, that's great. I, I know they would just go, wow, great to have Matt Reese. And opening this thing, I thought right? it, he wanted. I thought it was just a, then it would have been a two man show, and he didn't want that. He said there should be an MC before you. Right, <laughs> right, so right. Funny. No, that's cool. Know. That's cool. That is cool. So, but, but you know, I was going to say, as far as like you know, when you say contender, I don't know about contender, but just kind of knowing you, like, kind of, I guess, made it a bit. How how about you? Def- well, sorry, I was going to say, I think yeah. wouldn't you agree that you become a contender? when we go back to saying what you said earlier, which is be yourself, when you start, where, when do you start really being you on stage? Do you think from the beginning you were you or you were figuring it out and then something happened where you're like, oh, this is, this is, I can just be me. I don't have to be somebody else. Yeah, no, I mean, I was, well, I was always trying to be me. So that wasn't the problem as far as, you know, like, but, but I was different versions of me, you know, man, at first I'd go up and I would smoke cigarettes. I'd smoke so much on stage. Sometimes people would go another one and I'd be like trying to be the mean guy and they'll rant, you know, the Dennis Leary, who I love too, ranting. And then I'd go up and I'd try to pontificate like Chappelle um, you know, and, and just trying to find my own way, you know, but it's for me, at least I was just constantly trying to get to a point on stage where I'm the same kind of guy I am at a party when I'm making everybody laugh and in my, my comfort zone, you know? Right. So again, I can't remember when I exactly got there, but I remember Robert Kelly, again, just I adore that guy giving me a real nice compliment once on a radio show saying when we play the seller. There was we broke in together, you know. So he would he would close these shows out at the cellar and crush, and I would usually host. That's how we started out there, and then you know eventually you know I stopped hosting and, but I would um, you know also not always host, but I would uh, I would talk about my life and my relationship with my wife or my girlfriend before she was my wife, and I do and, and Robert Kelly would go. He goes and you do good. You did really good, man. You're good stuff. And he goes, but then I go up and I would crush. You got to admit, like, dude, you would fucking destroy the room. <laughs> and he goes, but you were like talking more about your life. And I was doing kind of dirtier stuff. Um, and he goes, and then as time went by, you got more comfortable at talking about that stuff that you were trying to talk about. You got better. And, and he goes, and I got better too, but I was still talking about this stuff that like I wasn't interested in talking about anymore. And he goes, so I would go home and tell my start the, when I got married, I tell my wife, I want to be talking more about like what Pete's talking about and do that. And I go, that's so funny because I go home to my wife and go, this guy fucking crushes, man, you know? Right. But he's like, so I almost had to, he goes, I almost had to regroup and go back and uh, take the hit a little bit to try and learn to talk about my life the way you were. Whereas you were already doing that from the start. 
And I was like, oh, I appreciate you noticing that, man. I really do. Because early on, I felt like maybe I could have been doing other stuff that would have crushed more. But, like, it just wasn't going to serve a purpose for me, you know? I'm not saying I could have crushed like Bob. I mean, Bobby would fucking bring the roof down. Yeah, yeah. He's always been like that. Yeah. And even more so now. Yeah, yeah. With stuff that he's now proud of talking about, I guess, you know, as far as not, I guess, like it is great. I'm just saying, right. talking about himself. Yeah, it's the, yeah, yeah, exactly. But for me, at the end of the day, I just want to say hanging out with a tell, you know, beginning, he'd be like, you know, give you some tips here and there or tell me I have to headline and then reaching that point when I was headlining all the time and I'd come home and I'd be at the cellar and I'd be having a smoke with him outside, literally just talking like two comics and two friends. Um, again, I don't talk to him at all. I don't call him or anything, but just in that moment and that kind of stuff, and you're like, I fucking made it, man. Yeah, that that is true. When you're just you're not even talking to the guy that you idolized as somebody that's at this higher level. You're just talking to him as another comedian. Yeah, he's bringing up venues and and you know him because you played him, you know. And he's like, you know the da da da. And you're like, yeah, the guy over there, you know. And you're just like, I'm in it, baby. I'm in it. So I've been everywhere, man. So, so then anyway. the whole radio thing comes in for you. And this is, I guess this is before podcasting. Cause you start doing the radio show with Jim Brewer. Yeah. You probably mo- mostly had, did you mostly have stand up comedian guests or all kind of people? Uh, I'd say all kind of people because in serious, what was so cool and still is there. It's like, there's so many studios, as you know, so there's so many different shows with so many different guests. So sometimes you can pawn guests off of another show or like you'll have somebody go out and go, they got an a, a, a astrologer on the Cosmopolitan channel. The guy's got free time and you're like, bring in the astrologer, you know, so you get a lot of that kind of shit going on. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But then you get stuff like everybody tries to pawn everybody's guest, you know, so like Brewer and James Hetfield from the lead singer Metallica, they're, they're, they're very good friends. So he would come on and when he would come on, he would be like, you know, dude, I don't make sure they don't bug me to go on other channels, you know? So, and other shows would do that too, you know, like they would have people on and they'd be like, don't have people from other shows wait outside the doorway. So when our guest leaves, they try to drag him on some other show and he feels bad or she feels bad and goes on it when she really wants to go home. (laughs) So So how does that, how does that show evolve and how does that start? How does, what happens? You and him are friends oh, first? Obviously. Brewer calls me up one day and says, we're really good friends, you know, and says, you want to go do a show for Sirius once a week, once a month for th- three hours, we're going to do a show, or maybe once every two weeks. Uh, and they'll give us like a couple hundred bucks for it, and uh, we'll see if we like it. I said, all right. We literally did one. We did one, and we had so many laughs and so fun. He calls me up the next day after it, and he goes, so uh, talk to Sirius, uh, and they want to know if I want to do a show with you co- you co-hosting, you'd be my guy, but it's the Brewer show. Um, that's not him saying it. I'm telling you, that's just what it was, the Brewer show. And he goes, uh, and they want to know if we want to do it uh, every four days a week for a year, uh, Monday through Thursday. And I'm like, holy shit, yeah, I'd do that. And then, like, a couple months into doing that, they're like, you want to go every day and do a three-year contract? And I was like, fucking, hey, this is awesome. And then we we did it, and we had so much fun. But it was kind of frustrating back then because we weren't, it wasn't even serious XM, and Stern wasn't even on yet. Right. So, you know, for me, it was great 
for Brewer, it was more like, you know, comics were coming in. And then it started to be this way for me after a while, too. Comics were coming in to promote a special or this they're doing or that they're doing. And after a while, you're just sitting there and the grass is greener on the other side. You know, you're like, all right, we're, we're entertaining truckers right now. That's who had serious at first, a bunch of truckers. And Joe Schmo's coming in. He's doing a special. What the fuck? You know, so then you start chomping at the bit. Was This must have been before you could have like one of those ISDN lines in your hotel room where you could do the show from your comedy gigs. You probably couldn't do comedy gigs if you're on the radio five days a week. Yeah, you're real. I mean, but for me, it wasn't the end of the world because it's getting paid well to do the radio and right. I could just play all the city clubs. But right. Brew, you know, he makes a lot of money on the road. Plus, he's like, where's this going? Where's this going? You know, and then and and then, um, you know, Stern came on and got a little bit better. But still, you know, you just Jim was also started doing it from home, which was fine. But then after a while, you just want to do he wanted to do some other stuff. And then, you know, which I get, but then I wanted to do it by myself and they wouldn't let me fuckers. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. The other, the they other thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I, you probably don't even know, cause I don't think it aired, but maybe we had the same manager, but you did a, you did a pilot with Jim Brewer for like, what was it for? It was either ABC, NBC or CBS. One of those, right? Fox, yeah, Fox, Fox, Fox. Okay, I rem was so that was before the radio show, obviously, right? Oh yeah, way before, yeah, yeah. Because I saw the pilot, and I don't think I ever told you this, but I was like, it's funny that you now that I know you had a little bit of the acting chops in college because I thought you shined in the pilot. I was like, fucking, you, you, as comedians, we can always <laughs> tell which comedians can do the acting and which ones can't. And I was like, fucking Corielli. And talk about knowing who you are. You were being you. In the, in the, and that's what stood out to me. I was like, he's being him. He doesn't look like he's pushing. And it's still funny. Like, Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. You were well, really Well, definitely it. wanted and, me to get that. So he wrote it to be me, So which I appreciate. Oh, so yeah. that, that made it even easier. You didn't have to be like some overly Italian guy like that we audition for sometimes. Yeah, and Brewer said, he goes, dude, you might have a problem because another comic came on and knows it was written for you, and they're doing you. And they're doing you. He goes, and they're doing you good. So you got to. <laughs> really? He goes, you got, we got to. It was, I was auditioning on Monday. So over the weekend, we practiced with the casting director like crazy because they all wanted me to get the part because i was jim's friend and they liked me you know so <laughs> but i, I want to you know, know so bad who was doing you do you know who it was uh no i don't remember was he a yeah. comic or just an actor he was a comic i do remember but i'm not saying oh because i know a yeah. few comedians that imitate you and they do it well i'm trying to, <laughs> trying to remember who it is but What's the guy who done? directed that you know, you know how they always say it's so funny when they say like when when you do something that doesn't go if it doesn't happen a project and they go you made another relationship and you're like yeah what the hell is that worth really you know at the end of the day so when I when uh, one time Kevin James who I never met uh, asked me he got a hold of me and said he's got the new show Kevin can wait and he goes I have a lot of writers in here but I could use another comic man would you be interested and I was fucking yeah, psyched I love Kevin he's so awesome. Um, yeah, that was going to be the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is how that come about because uh, he's another one that can nail the acting in a sitcom like oh, nobody. Dude, he's the it's best. Kevin James, and I'm not just saying this because I wrote for the guy. He's the best sitcom actor 
that has ever lived. Yeah, he can he's do it unbelievable all. at he can do it all. There's Physical, not many guys that can go romantic, over the top and you, and you don't think it's like them trying too hard. No. And, what, and you know what he was amazing? What he's unbelievable at is like the night before we would film a, a live show, I would, in my hotel room or my apartment or whatever, I would grab a six-pack of beer and I would go through the script and I would pick like four or five jokes that I knew weren't going to work. Because I'm not, you know, I'm not the showrunner, so I don't get to decide what's in. But I'm like, that's not going to work. And when it doesn't work, Kevin wants something else. So I would just zone in on those all night and just like, like all night, spend hours just trying to get the perfect joke for those ones. And then when that would happen, he'd go, anyone got a joke? And uh, Pete, what do you got? And I'd give it. And I, a couple of times early on, especially the joke I gave got, got such a big applause that they stopped the scene. They stopped the scene, you know? So by like the third week, uh, they like I was like one of the few people that was always allowed to be out there to pitch new jokes. Um, and you get really into that. It's really exciting. But sometimes the joke I would go to pitch Kevin would be like in the middle of the scene. And he would look at it and I go, and this is live in between takes. The whole audience is waiting. I go, if you say this, maybe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, OK. And he goes, uh, OK. And then he go back to the scene. And he has like 10, 12 lines before my joke even comes up. And I'm like, there's, there's no way he's going to remember the line. He just looked at it for two seconds. I barely remember the line and I wrote it, you know. Boom. He would never miss it. Just nail it. Huge laugh. And you're like, how? I don't know how this guy memorizes that stuff so fast. And well, just you're forgetting. I mean, look how long King of Queens was on the air and look how good it was. So Yeah, but the other actors can't do that. That man. skill I mean, of having like, it, it would be like, that would be like being surprised that ten, Ted Danson nailed it. <laughs> you know, like, of yeah. course he's going to yeah, nail I it. Yeah, I suppose. You're and, talking... then, and then Kevin could take nothing. You have no jokes for him at all. And he'll go, I got it, I got it. And then he'd just go up and just, like, do something funny, man. You're like, this guy's, like, worth every penny, man. Who who gave you the – was that your idea completely to try to find the things that you th – that might not work and come up with good ones that will work? So you're 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 overly prepared for the, for the shoot day. Did someone give? Yeah. That's a great idea. It's yeah. No, did someone well, tell you he, to do that. Uh, well, uh, I, I uh, yes, this guy who who writes for Kevin all the time named Rock Rubin. Who's I know just, Rock. Uh, okay. Yeah, he's such a great writer and such a nice man. But mm -hmm. you know, when you which I learned early on when you're pitching a sitcom is like you're in a writers' room with all these people. Kevin's not there. The stars usually aren't there. But you pitch a joke, it gets a huge laugh, and then the showrunner explains why or says no, he's not using your joke, and you're like, all right, fine. You know, you can't you can't get upset about it. It makes no sense. But Rock taught me, he's like, listen, when you got some really good ones, because once you say it, if they don't use it, you can't you can't go to Kevin or the star of whatever show and go, I had this really funny joke. The showrunner said no, but I just wanted to run it by you. That's mutiny on the bounty. You can't do that. That would just make chaos. You'd right. be disliked by the writers. Yeah, it's so, a competitive atmosphere, say, right? I'm guessing super competitive atmosphere. Everybody. Yeah, I don't think anything shit. like Saturday Night Live, but you know, I not as competitive. Not it's. I mean, everybody wants to get the best joke in and 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 that kind of thing. But it's just odd sometimes what the showrunner does and doesn't use. But you got to bite your tongue because once you pitch it, you can't repitch it. So. Rock taught me, he's like, listen, you got a really good joke. Don't pitch it on a Monday because even if they use your joke, you you know, you're doing the re you're, you're, you're having table reads and rehearsals by Thursday. The joke might not be funny to anybody anymore because they heard it a hundred times and they freak out and think it's not a funny joke. Let's take it out. And, and you're sitting there going, it is funny. You just heard it 20 times, you know? Right. 
So he goes, you might want to save your best ones for the day of the shoot. And then if we need a, a joke on the spot, you got it. And I was like, ooh, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I took him up on that. And you it must get out upset. Well. You must get upset. Has it ever happened at the shoot where you got a good one and you give it to him, it gets a big applause, and then it still doesn't make the edit? You're like, what the fuck? They didn't even – do you not find out oh. that it's going to make the edit until – Oh, uh, they... uh, well, not yeah, – yeah, that you really don't think much about. But the editing room is right next to us, so you can hear them when they're cutting it together. But if anything – trust me, anything that gets a laugh stays in a script. I mean, stays in in the end, that's for sure. Right. And again, and by the way, Rock's the kind of guy you do a new joke and get a big laugh, and he'd look over at you and, like, give you the like way to go you know so yeah. he was cool man but it was interesting doing that that's cool i mean it's funny because i know rock from like he's another one of those guys i think we played softball with him because we used to all play softball i feel like rock used to play somewhere where i played maybe it was in la i don't know but wow. sometimes we, it, those are the guys you wanted like in sports too that like realize this shit's a team sport like if you can get a good sitcom needs to be everybody working together to make this end product and when it's fucking good we all should enjoy that we made a good show you know it shouldn't be yeah. the salt that's what i used to say about stand-ups where they we run into problems sometimes because it's such a by yourself business i'm like if we collaborated a little bit we could have fucking hit television shows like out the ass yeah, I, I kind of agree with that because it is kind of funny how like with these showrunners, I feel like one thing I've learned is that, you know, it's just as important to recognize somebody else if something's funny to like be be big enough to use it. Because if you have a hit show, no showrunner in the history of TV ever got fired for having a hit show. Like, you know what I mean? Right. They're not going to go. This show's a hit, but we're hearing that Kevin, like, or Timmy, the writer Timmy is really coming up with the funny stuff. So you're fired as a show. No, no, they're going to keep shit the way it is. Everyone, you know? Right. So, but anyway, I just wanted to say, as far as how that came together, when Kevin asked me to do it, he's like, uh, well, Rock called me, Rock Rubin. He's like, yeah, we just got to let CBS know. And it might be like a two week vetting process. Who knows with them, um, as far as, you know, but we'll, we're, we really want you. Know, we wanted to offer you the job first and you know, we'll give you a call. They call me back literally that day and say, yeah, CBS said, no problem. We love Pete. That's great. And the reason I bring it up is because then my buddy, uh, this comedian, Mike Loftus, more of a writer, but I know him uh, too. He writes on the, he was already a part of the show. Uh, me and him did a tour together, a Jameson whiskey tour. And he goes, dude, you, you know how you have things that happen and they don't work out, but you make relationships. I said, yeah, he goes, it's like, we're all in the writer's room. And Kevin says, I'm thinking about Pete Corielli. What does everybody think? And he goes, cause Kevin like was a fan of your standup and a fan of the podcast. And, uh, and he, and I, he goes, I go, I love Pete. We're really good friends. I did a tour with him. We talk all the time. The showrunner, a guy named Bruce Helford, he goes, we tried to do a show together. Me and him years ago. It was one of the things that didn't happen. I hoped it would. And he goes, I love Pete. I tried to do a show with him. I'd love to have him on the staff, right? Then they get a hold of CBS and the main lady, I forget her name at the time, but she goes, we just bought a show he wrote last year. We love Pete. Of course he can write on your show. So all these things that didn't work out, now when you want this thing, you do. It really happens. You know, those relationships all do come together. And then this past year, I wrote on Kevin's Netflix show, uh, a NASCAR show he did I called heard The Crew. That, yeah. And again, uh, you know, 
he wants me to write on it, but he, he's like, you know, it's got to run it by the showrunner. And the showrunner is the guy who was the freaking showrunner for the Jim Brew pilot that I acted on. And he goes, I love Pete. I uh, hired him once to be an actor. Now I'm going to hire him to be a writer. Let's do it. That That's so, why everybody's all over these new apps that just keep popping up for our phones. Like the one I had mentioned to you, Clubhouse. It's literally a way to network like crazy if you really wanted to. Because all of a sudden you're on the phone with... Bruce, like Bruce Alford's there and you're, you could be talking to him. It's like all these yeah. group chats, audio only. And uh, that's true. It's that that relationship. I mean, um, you doing the podcast right now is because we did comedy together. Or um, what was I going to say? Were you? T oh, like I just during Corona, I was like. I realized that actors didn't have to go go into Manhattan every day to do the auditions, that everything was virtual. And uh, I, a friend of mine's a pretty popular voiceover actor, and he goes, not only do you not have to go into New York City for the auditions anymore, he goes, you get the job, you record it at your house on your computer. You have to just put this thing called Source Connect on your computer and you pay a $30 a month membership. I go, I don't even have to get on a train to go audition or do the job. Yeah. So... He goes, yeah, I'll recommend you to my agent. She used to represent wow. me like 25 years ago. She's like, yeah, I know Joe Mattery. So it was like, yeah. And then she just started sending me out on auditions again. And I was like, yeah, when you're in it this long, you start to realize also when you've been doing it a long time, these relationships don't even have to be in comedy to help your comedy career. Like you could know some rich dude who wants to invest in a movie project that you might want to write like it's just all everything's about relationships that's why i hate when my son's on his computer and he's not out he just told me he didn't want to play on his eighth grade baseball team he didn't want to try out he because i he already plays on a travel team i'm like do you know how you're cut you're cutting yourself here you're like you know how many guys you're gonna meet by being on the team then they practice five days a week you're, you're gonna wish you did that when you're older no i won't i'm like <laughs> I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah. every relationship is important in life you know not only can you audition from home but when we were doing the first tv show for kevin kevin can wait on cbs uh -huh. when people were auditioning you know they would usually be through the casting director in the studio you know the casting place but once in a while you'd get one like we had a woman audition an older woman and she made the, this was obviously pre-pandemic and she made the video at home she didn't go into whatever casting place they're at and they passed it on to us and when we're first watching it we're going oh look she's she's in the hallway of a house look at the family photos in the background you know it was like and i think she lived in chicago or something and then her audition was good real good you know and then it kind of came down to her and another woman and uh, and I I never usually sit in on the casting. You can if you want when they show the videos in the writers' room. Uh -huh. And once in a while, maybe the showrunner will ask, uh, "What do you guys think?" But with this one, they're like, "What does everyone think?" And we all rooted for her because you could tell her husband did the video, and we're like, "She'd be so excited! She'd probably be jumping up and down." I go, "Kev, she'll be jumping up and down right there in that kitchen, right where she is now." You know, we got it. And we're like, "Let's give it to her. Let's make her life." You know, and sure as shit, she came on set. She was so excited, and we so 
where she did it actually helped her land it. If she was just at the casting office, we wouldn't have picked her, but it was just so endearing seeing yeah, her. As an act, I'm not fortunes. an acting teacher, but I remember an acting teacher saying it was all about humanizing it. And she, oh shit, yeah. And stand up is about humanizing it too. It's like that's why they like your stand up. It seems so human. You seem just like a regular dude and you, you're being you, you know? So, uh, isn't that interesting, Joe, when we see these guys that like, and I know you're like me in this mentality, certain comics that do stand up, they, they eat, breathe, live it. I mean, I've had comics without naming names say to me, uh, I'm not never getting married. I'm married to stand up, and in my in my head, I'm like, that's fucking bizarre, but okay. And like, I'm also like, do you you think that's gonna make you better than me? Your sole focus is stand up all the time, and then as time goes on, these guys go on stage, and all they can talk about is current events or joke, joke, joke. They have no life experiences because they literally wake up, write, go perform, go back. And yeah. uh, I know, you know a comedian. That's in not New York human, City. and it becomes like you said. You're not. You're not humanizing. You're not living. Yeah. I had a comedian that was. He would ask me advice sometimes, but he would never take it. And some. And, and I remember getting to know him, and he told me once that he hadn't taken a night off of doing stand up in nine years. Wow. Because if I don't have a spot, I go find somewhere to do stand up. You know, if it's a shitty open mic at a laundromat, I do it. I go. You're not living, dude. You got to live. You can't do stand up. You need to. It's like a marriage, right? You got to you got to not see your wife to two day for two days to be excited to see your wife again. You know what I mean? Yeah, Sometimes I mean, you need I, that. I guess it depends on what kind of stand up you're doing. I mean, if you're just reading the newspaper and doing jokes about that, then maybe you feel one night off and my machine well, starts to weaken. I don't know. That was what that was wrong crazy. with his act, though. When I would watch it. But I dude, you ever, you ever do no this? Living. I do that like. I'd go on like a week vacation back when I was younger, back when, you know, like me, I should be doing spots. People are getting better than me and that kind of part of my career and my life. Right. But you'd be on some vacation with your wife or girlfriend and you just, I go like, well, you gotta live. I mean, if I don't do this, I have nothing to talk about on stage. I ha you know, I'm trying to justify my vacation. Meanwhile, I go back uh, on stage after my vacation and I don't have a single bit about the fucking vacation. <laughs> <laughs> oh god we drive ourselves nuts why didn't we just be accountants bro <laughs> it's so true oh <laughs> uh, dude well <laughs> i'm gonna let you this i guess is a good segue to end it let you go back to your life because i saw you know in the middle of the interview your your father-in-law and some mud something's yeah. going on oh, with, yeah. it's your good house to see you man it's good to see you i remember once when we were doing montreal festival and and me, you, and another comic, we're having some drinks outside. And you're so, you're so honest. That's what I've always loved about you. You're going, uh, at one point, we're all talking, and you go to me, something like, you're just cracking jokes right now. Aren't you nervous? I'm, I'm totally freaking out right now. There's a lot going on here. There's I a lot that. going on. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I felt that too, but you you say it right out loud. I you're like, it. this is, <laughs> what? Yeah. You know how you always get worked up. <laughs> Dude, when we were at Montreal that first year, I don't know, were we I don't think we were in new faces together. No, Dude. maybe, I don't know, but maybe we were doing different shows, but new faces, both of us. The Dude, same I remember when you did new faces at Montreal, it's this everybody, it's like the biggest festival for comedians, especially when we were coming back. I mean, every network was there, every agent, just huge. And 
that new faces thing, you didn't even stay in that main hotel that everybody else was staying in. They put you up across the street from it. And I remember <laughs> yeah. my like manager at the time coming to where I was staying. And I'm like, I didn't even know what to wear to go eat breakfast. I was like, what the fuck? And I look back <laughs> at that and go, no wonder you, you didn't fucking make it. Back then, especially. No wonder you were fucking questioning the shirt that the collar wasn't right to go eat breakfast. Like, like they were gonna come up like I was like I was gonna have a Matt Dillon story, which I used to hear he made he got discovered in an elevator or something. Like that was gonna happen. Who are you? What's that shirt? Here's the contract. You did make it, by the way, guy. Don't ever forget that and don't kid yourself. You made it. I made it. You're right. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I, I, I meant to wonder why I, I, I didn't do that well at that new faces round. I did oh, better God. years later when I came back to Montreal as the, uh, the masters. That's when I, that was my contender when I started to go, just, just be yourself. And, and like what you said, say the shit that you don't think like where you, you said earlier, where you say something out loud that you didn't even mean to be a bit. And that's what gets the biggest laugh. Yeah, the thing I said to my buddy. Come on, yeah. Yeah, I had a I had the weirdest gig last Saturday. Some guy I knew from twenty years ago was turning forty, and he goes, "Can you make a a video of just like jokes, like a ten minute video?" And I go, "That would be really weird, dude." I go, "But I got this new program where I can take some of my bits that are pre recorded from my specials. I'll put ones that are about getting older." And then I'll talk in between them like I do on a podcast real quick. And I'll make it 10 minutes long and I'll send it to you. He's like, that's a great idea. Do it. And he calls me the next day. He goes, you know what got the biggest left? I go, what? He goes, not even your stand-up. He goes, in the middle of the videos, you said something like um, how people... Oh, I said something about how your nose gets bigger when you get older. I just ad-libbed that. And I go, people come up to me and ask me if I boxed. And I go, yeah. Like, how's that not to be? Hurt? How's that not hurtful? Did you ever box? I go, no. I'm fucking Italian. What do you want me to do, dude? Like, fucking box. He goes, that got a huge laugh. I go, it did. I never said that anywhere. Oh, that's great. That's so funny, man. Yeah. That's a great one. Shit, oh, dude. Oh god, don't have a box. Good hanging with you, brother. You too, man. I want to see you on a sitcom. Because uh, ah man man we'll see tell someday, Kevin maybe. to cut you into an episode every time you <laughs> give him a great line that gets an applause you get a you get a scene <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah so is that is the show on Netflix did it get picked up for a second season or no waiting? that one didn't that one didn't so was yeah. he doing another one no no that's it that's it you know okay. um the the last yeah but the the one we did on CBS he did have me on um. He was big back then, and which I love too was the tag on on the sitcom. When you come back for one second for like one like a uh, short scene, mm -hmm. he really likes that. So it was a Thursday night. And we're writing one in the in his office, just like me, him, and three other writers, and we really got to laughing. Long story short, it was like another couple at his house, and the guy was Larry the Fish guy, and we're all laughing. Kevin goes, and Petey, you're doing this tomorrow. You're Larry the Fish Guy. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm so excited. And there's some lines, you know? Mm -hmm. So the next day, we're going to pre-tape it uh, without a live studio audience. And, and we do it, and it gets a lot of laughs with the people just in the camera crew and stuff. And they come up to me, they go, we're adding it tonight. You're doing it live because everyone loved it so much. 
And then we went, we did it live and it was so fun and it killed again. But the woman playing my wife, very attractive woman. Um, and you know, she's really nice. And at one point in the scene, she like puts a hand on my knee, totally like an actress would because she's playing your wife. And I remember when she put her hand on my knee in my head, I'm going, wow, this, this, I go, this actress is really good, man. And one way they, you know, found her. I mean, she's so realistic. She's bringing me into it more. And then I didn't even know until it was done uh, with the rehearsal. It was Kevin's wife. She's an actress. She's awesome. Steph. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, Kev, your wife's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I have one scene ever in the whole two-year run. His, and real I, wife? his wife? His real wife plays my wife in the scene. And it got a big laugh. It was a lot of fun, man. Oh, he's, wow. He's just a great dude, So man. where is, is it? Is that dude. episode on the ne on Netflix? I could see it? No, no, no. I was on the CBS show. Oh, was that was on, on the, CBS. I got to see that. Yeah. You, got, you got that online somewhere? No, I don't think so. Sometimes I post. So I, I post here's, well, I'll end with this last question because I it's something I'm curious about because it's like, you know, all of us stand-up comedians that have the dream. My dream, I would say, is more uh, having my own sitcom than being a successful stand-up comedian. Uh, I've always wanted to know what that felt like, you know, to be on stage, st studio audience doing a sitcom. And now you've done it you did that whole pilot and you, you did this scene. You've got to feel that. Like I've always felt like that probably wouldn't be that hard to do because the audience is there and it would really excite a stand-up comedian. And I bet we would shine. Am, am I correct? Or is it something yeah. you go, fuck this can, you no, can miss. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. You shine, but the, sometimes we would have comics on and they would be a little nervous and they wouldn't shine. But you know they would in two weeks. They're just nervous because it's like they've the never done any of this. Yeah, like, yeah, everything is deer in the headlights. But when I was writing on the show, I was there every day. I mean, I literally, I could go walk out on the set by myself. I mean, sometimes I would bring my pad out and hang out on the set bar, you know, just to, so when you're around it like that crazy amount and you're watching the rehearsals, you, nothing makes you nervous anymore because you, you you know the network people you know it all you said mm -hmm. so then by the time i did the scene i was like i should probably crush this fucking scene because i'm not nervous about any of this you know right and uh so so to your point yeah once you get and, then, and once you get past those initial nerves of all of it being new for a comic yes there is no it would you'd be a fool to not do it in front of a live studio audience if you could because when you get that first laugh oh the blood starts warming up you you don't even want the other actor you're like get that fucking person out of here let me do a monologue right now i'm i'm loving this shit you know well, well, and they love you and then the scene ends and then uh, while they're setting up the next scene you're still fucking doing stand up to the crowd <laughs> Then at the end, Kev brings his, his uh, you know, the whole cast out, and they're all hugging. It's, oh, it's fucking great. How great about stuff. how about when you did the pilot with Brewer? Because that's a whole episode you were in. That was that tape. You had to only have been in front of the studio audience the day of the taping, so you 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 don't get time to master it. It was one day, right? It wasn't a two day. Yeah. Shoot. Yeah, for that too, shit. Were I you noticing scene by scene you were getting more comfortable that day? You're like, all right, I'm, I feel better. Yeah, I was. It was, but I was also so. I was only like doing stand up like three years, so you know, you you also uh, naive enough to think it's like 
when a rookie makes it to the Super Bowl and he thinks he's going to be back every year, you're like, oh, God, if I knew I'd be doing this in three years, I would have started when I was 15. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, you know, but I remember the day of that shoot, I was so nervous. I went and had three Jack and Cokes at a bar before the fucking live shoot for the Brewer Pilot. Wow. Because I was so nervous, man. Yeah. Was that, do you look back and go, I shouldn't have done that or you should have done that? Nah, I, I should have did that. And my, my favorite was my first hour special. Everything was set up to go. I was doing it in New York City, and I was practiced it, da-da-da. And I was out back with my wife, and she's like, do you need anything else? I'm like, nah, I just I'd love to smoke a little weed. And we smoked a joint before I went out on stage. And as soon as I hit the stage, I was like, damn, I'm so glad I smoked that joint. It was perfect, baby. <laughs> True. I do know that feeling of just a, the right enough buzz that you're fine. Yeah. Not too much where you're like. Yeah. I, I, and I was so prepared that there was no way, even in my sleep, I knew these jokes, you know? So it was great. Oh, man. So. Well, thanks so much, dude. I appreciate it. No, my you. pleasure, brother. Great to talk to you and to see you on the video and all that, man. You're looking good, man. You too. And and I, I, I listen. You're like, you and Pete are one of the only, or you and uh, Sebastian are one of the only podcasts that I that I listen to. It's like, I listen to you and Marin and that's basically it. And I listen to Howard Stern, but that's not a podcast, but you Thanks, guys just man, fucking, you it. have the only podcast really. That's just fucking funny. It's a lot like Kevin James's sitcom where it's just funny. Like it's not Thanks, like bro. some serious, it's just funny. I just laugh watching it it's, or and <laughs> listening to it. It's fucking great. Shit, dude. Thanks a lot, Joe. It means a lot, bro. Yeah. Coming from you. It means a lot. All right, man. Take it easy. Tell your wife. All right. I'll see you, brother. (laughs) Later. (laughs) Liking the idea of uh, mostly audio with the podcast. The only way that you can get the video of the podcast now is if you subscribe to my Patreon. If you want to do that, just go to patreon.com forward slash pretender to contender. It's pretty easy. Okay, you got that? Did you write it down? You didn't write it down. Write it down. (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash pretender to contender. Okay, what else do I have coming up? I'm doing Remember When, my one-man show. My one-man stand-up show is back into live performances in front of live audiences. I'm really excited. May 7th, I will be at Soul Joel's. Soul Joel's Comedy Lounge out there in Royersford, Pennsylvania. Okay? Go buy some tickets. Go to JoeMatterese.com. All right? And, of course, this podcast is now on the Chop Sports Network. Go check them out. Go follow them on social media. Do all that. 